Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 140, Bonfire of Weimar. By the end of February 1933, Hitler had been in power for about a month. Because the Reichstag had been dissolved and elections scheduled immediately upon his ascendancy, he spent most of that time in campaign mode. Not much had meaningfully changed in the nature of government. It was still the same old presidentially appointed one. But you could tell there was a charged feeling in the air. The most meaningful decrees issued by the new government were to suppress the SPD and especially the KPD. Street violence ran rampant, and the Nazis whipped themselves into a frenzy that a communist coup was in the offing. After all, if the roles were reversed, the Nazis themselves were positive that they would be planning a coup. They were assaulting their enemies at will. Surely they would fight back at some point. The communists had to be. They just had to be planning something. They really weren't, but the Nazis were bracing themselves for a civil war regardless. Hitler wanted the communists to make a move to justify him passing an enabling act. Enabling acts had been used in crises in the past, especially during the first half of the 20s in Weimar, Germany. What they did was basically hand the chancellor dictatorial powers to rule as they saw fit. In the more conscientious hands of the past, these powers were quickly returned after legislation that was unpopular but deemed necessary was enacted by decree, but Hitler resolved to hang on to them forever once he had been granted them. The storm of pent-up emotion finally broke on the night of February 27, 1933. On that night, a funny thing happened on the way to the Reichstag. It burned down. A young Dutch communist named Marius van der Lubbe claimed to have been slowly making his way from his home country to the Soviet Union. He was an orphan, his father having abandoned the family and his mother having died early in life, so he didn't have many attachments back home. He had joined with the local Communist Party, but found himself dissatisfied with all the rules associated with it. Plus, he had a penchant for random acts of personal protest that swung towards the violent. So, for whatever reason, he decided the USSR would be a better fit and headed east. He reached Poland before turning back, again, for whatever reason, and only reached Berlin on February 18th. He found the proletariat there beaten down and apathetic to the crisis around them, despairing over the SPD and KPD's inability to challenge the brazen Nazis. Luba decided arson would inspire the masses. He tried to burn down a welfare office, then a suburban town hall, and finally a former imperial palace, only succeeding in not getting immediately caught. He wasn't discouraged, though, and decided to go even bigger on his next attempt. On the 27th, he entered the Reichstag after 9 p.m., armed with matches and kindling. He tried to start in the building's restaurant, but had no luck there. He went to the debating chamber, though, and found the large curtains to be perfect. And probably unplanned by him, the building's dome was over that room and helped provide perfect airflow to get a blaze going. He would go from room to room, starting other fires, finally being detected and taken into custody by the building staff. By that time, it was too late to stop the fire, and the main body of the Reichstag building was totally ablaze. It was a dramatic sight, especially on the cold, windy evening like it was then. Hofstangel was at that moment staying in Goering's official quarters just across from the Reichstag. A housekeeper hurriedly awakened him and told him what was up. He immediately telephoned Goebbels, who at first believed he was joking. The propaganda chief initially refused to alert Hitler, but his own contacts independently confirmed the story. It wasn't a joke, and almost immediately Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels had assembled outside the fire. 
They were joined by Poppin and Rudolf Diles, who was a, at that time, non-Nazi subordinate of Goering's in the Prussian police and the future head of the Prussian Gestapo. Diles found that Luba was already being <coughs> interrogated and inspected the man himself. He saw the wild joy in Luba's face and believed the guy when he said he was acting alone. He felt it necessary to report in with the Chancellor, who, along with his subordinates, had retreated to Goering's offices across the street to watch the flames from the balcony and plan their response. I've been pulling a lot of this from the book The Coming of the Third Reich by Richard J. Evans, and I'm pretty much just going to give you Diles' accounting when he checked in with the Nazi leadership as presented in that book. Quoting Diles, Hitler had propped himself up on the stone parapet of the balcony with both arms and stared silently into the red sea of flames. The first storms lay behind him. As I entered, Goering walked towards me. In his voice lay the whole ominous emotionalism of that dramatic hour. This is the beginning of the communist uprising, said Goering. Now they'll strike out. There's not a minute to waste. Goering could not continue. Hitler turned to the assembled company. I saw now that his face was flaming red with excitement and from the heat that was gathering in the coppola. He shouted as if he wanted to burst in an unrestrained way such as I had not previously experienced with him. There will be no more mercy now, said Hitler. Anyone who stands in our way will be butchered. The German people won't have any understanding for leniency. Every communist functionary will be shot where he is found. The communist deputies must be hanged this very night. Everybody in league with the communists is to be arrested. Against Social Democrats and Reichsbanner, too, there will be no more mercy. I reported the results of the first interrogation of Marius van der Lube, that in my opinion, he was a madman. But Hitler was not the right man to tell this to. He mocked my childish credulity and said, It's a really ingenious, long-prepared thing. These criminals have worked it out very nicely, but they've miscalculated, haven't they, my party comrades? These subhumans don't suspect at all how much the people is on our side. In their mouse holes, from which they now want to come out, they don't hear anything of the rejoicing of the masses. And so it went on. I asked Gehring to step aside, but he didn't let me speak. Highest emergency footing for the police, ruthless use of firearms, and anything else that following such a case from major military alarm orders. And that is the end of Diles' account. He would tell a subordinate that the situation was a madhouse. Hitler himself was more obsessed with the potential of the situation than in any of the damage, commenting that evening, good riddance to that trashy old shack. The time had come for the reckoning against the communists, and after that, members of the SPD and the trade unions. The police already had on hand lists and files of prominent KPD members, and they set off that very evening to round up as many as they could around the entire nation, aided, of course, by their auxiliaries in the SA and SS. The act was so sudden that a good many were picked up before the sun could even rise, in total around 4,000, with more being hunted down over the next month, so that by April there were 25,000 in custody. Oftentimes, they were first delivered to SA or SS offices, where they were beaten and tortured. If they survived, then they were turned over for more long-term incarceration. In what was almost too perfect of timing, the cabinet had been discussing a new piece of legislation from the Minister of Justice, Franz Gertner, who you might remember as having been the judge who let Hitler off with a highly lenient sentence for high treason after the Beer Hall Push almost a decade previously. The new legislation was designed to treat a general strike from the communists as an act of high treason, although Gertner had every intention to treat those hypothetical examples as harshly as possible. The Minister of the Interior, Wilhelm Frick, took the proposal and expanded upon it. The definition of public disorder was widened, 
all the better to accommodate the Reichstag fire and the supposed threat of communist revolution, and would also allow the cabinet, and not just President Hindenburg, to suspend sections of the Constitution relating to civil rights. Naturally, limits on how long someone could be detained were also removed. Finally, it also allowed the federal government to take over at the state level if the public order was deemed to be at risk. The discretion to make that call was left to those at the federal level. The updated legislation was presented to the cabinet at 11 a.m. on the 28th, and Hitler was sure to remind his non-Nazi colleagues that their entire mission statement was to destroy the communists. That time had now come. Poppin tried to object, but his allies weren't in a debating mood that particular morning. Hitler took the law titled For the Protection of People and State over to Hindenburg for his sign-off to be issued as a decree. Despite the fact that this would allow for his own office to be circumvented, the president was just as panicked as everybody else and signed off on it. Now the authoritarian games could really begin, and the decree became kind of the foundational document of Nazi Germany. The response to the crackdown among the two-thirds of the country that didn't vote for the KPD and SPD was tellingly positive. The press was jammed with government-placed stories of a widespread communist plot that would have unleashed reigns of terror in every little village, with the Reichstag fire repeated in government buildings at every level. The bulk of the German people embraced the loss of liberty, which they felt no longer served their interests, in exchange for the perceived cause of their national division being sequestered away out of sight. Non-leftist Germans were exhilarated by the decisive demonstration of force, and an air of credibility was given to the Hitler government that had been sorely lacking all through the history of Weimar. On March 3rd, Goering addressed a crowd in Frankfurt, saying, Fellow Germans, my measures will not be crippled by any bureaucracy. I won't have to worry about justice. My mission is only to destroy and exterminate. This struggle will be a struggle against chaos, and I shall not conduct it with police power. A bourgeois state might have done that. Certainly, I shall use the power of the state and the police to the utmost, my dear communists, so don't draw any false conclusions. But I shall lead the brown shirts in the struggle to the death, and my claws will grasp your necks. This was what the majority of the German people wanted, brute force. With the election coming up on the 5th, the nation's industrialists dropped 3 million more marks into the Nazi party coffers. One last burst of juice to get on their good side before the final election. The results of which are more symbolic in importance than anything else. Uh, despite covering the nation in propaganda, despite the fear-mongering, and despite brown shirts hanging around the polling places, the Nazis still only got a smidge under 44% of the vote. Combined with the DNVP's 8%, that was enough to get a majority for the coalition, but that really didn't matter anymore. Notable is that the SPD got 18 and the KPD 12%, uh, declines for both, but even in that atmosphere, 30% of the electorate went out to vote for the direct enemies of the regime. Hitler declared the results a triumph and moved to start banning his opposition. The gloves would be coming off post-haste. Between March 5th and the 9th, the Nazis sent the brown shirts back into the streets and cowed the state-level governments that hadn't yet fallen in line with the new regime to appoint reliable national socialists into positions where they control local police forces. Following the model of Prussia, where control of the police was used to pressure the rest of the local government into compliance, the federal nature of the German state was de facto ended. It's hard to talk about states' rights when town halls were flying the Nazi flag and positions of power were handed over to men who all shared a single master. 
A fresh wave of terror was unleashed by the Nazi foot soldiers. As Goebbels put the propaganda into overdrive and all the pent-up paranoia of the previous month broke out into the open. Thousands of communists and socialists were rounded up, with 10,000 rounded up by March 15th. By the end of 1933, over 100,000 had spent time in custody, with at least 600 people murdered, while the KPD claimed as high as 2,500 people murdered. Many were sold out by their neighbors in the name of so-called national unity. On March 20th, Heinrich Himmler, the leader of the SS, announced via a press statement that leftist prisoners would start to be gathered in what turned out to be the first of many concentration camps, Dachau. The camp, opened days later on the 22nd, became a cudgel against resistance to the regime, as people opted to comply with the Nazis rather than face an uncertain fate behind the barbed wire. And most Germans held little sympathy for the prisoners headed there. The inhabitants of the actual town, Dachau, dispassionately watched the communists be marched down the road towards the camp and figured that they were getting what they deserved. Early on, Dachau was run by the local police, but within a month was being run by the SS. While the conditions in the camp were not yet as depraved as they would eventually become, the guards took special glee from the start with beating the prisoners relentlessly, and four Jewish inmates were shot early on, with their deaths brushed off as an escape attempt. One actually survived the first attempt at executing him and was transported back to the town for medical attention, and once attended to, told anyone who'd listen about what was going on in the camp, which just played into the hands of the regime, as instead of protesting the tragedy unfolding, the population only became quieter and more compliant. The SS took this as a success, and very quickly other concentration camps started to pop up across the nation. With the communists being smashed, the brown shirts and their leaders ruled the streets, stealing every bit of money and property they could take from communists, socialists, and Jews. Local SPD politicians were pressured into resigning their positions so that they could be filled by SA men who saw that their time had finally come. The next day, the 23rd, marked the opening of the newly elected Reichstag. On account of the Reichstag building's damage from the fire, the body met in the Kroll Opera House, which would be the ongoing site of the German leadership's conclaves. The building was surrounded by Nazi supporters jeering and threatening the non-Nazis. Inside, the halls were filled with SA and SS men. A swastika banner was hung behind the speaker's area, and Hitler appeared dressed in the brown shirt uniform, matching all the other Nazi representatives. Hitler put forth his long-desired enabling act, a piece of legislation that would enable him as chancellor to issue laws by decree without the input of the president or Reichstag. It would effectively end the democracy and ensure that Hitler would not be beholden to Hindenburg any longer to implement laws. The last barrier was attaining the two-thirds Reichstag majority to legitimize the enabling act. Papen and the other conservatives had been unnerved by the fresh waves of street violence, as they had believed bringing Hitler on board would signal the end of that very violence. However, now that their illusions were dispelled, they faced the reality that the left was being dismantled, the police were firmly in the hands of the NSDAP, the army had withdrawn into neutrality, and most importantly, the SA had controlled the nation's streets in practice. To go against Hitler would mean terminating their long-term project of dissolving the republic and fighting a civil war where their base of support would be hopelessly divided and out of position to fight Hitler. So, they fell in line with the Chancellor. Then there was the Zentrum, a party whose support would also be required. 
They had long since jettisoned their attachments to the Republic and were more interested in protecting German Catholics, the portion of the population where they drew the vast majority of their support. The SA's reign of terror had extended to harassing the Catholic element in German society, with the Church being seen as an institution that held more loyalty to the Vatican than to the Fatherland. The party leadership offered Hitler their support and loyalty in exchange for promises of protection moving forward, an agreement Hitler accepted. A little over three-fourths of the SPD reps were present, with the remainder being in hiding, custody, or the hospital. Hitler didn't bother to try to get their support. The final trick was on Goering's part, when he called an audible and said that the Reichstag's rules would be modified to not count as part of the voting total the communist reps, of whom none were present. He didn't have the on-paper authority to do this, it was blatantly illegal actually, but nobody dared to challenge him. The effect of this was to lower the bar as to what was considered a two-thirds majority. Speaking before the chamber, Hitler gloated over his victory over the communists and promised that if the Enabling Act was not passed, then he would resort to the tactics of violence immediately. The SPD chairman, Otto Wels, was to his credit brave enough to speak out against the measure, if only moderately. Clutching a cyanide capsule in case the Nazis tried to arrest him before he could finish his speech, he spoke of Weimar's achievements, how the Republic had brought Germany back into the community of nations and provided an environment to live their lives freely. He lightly warned that previous laws to oppress the SPD and socialism had failed, and that this time around they'd fail again. The trials of the present would pass, and a better day would dawn. Unfortunately, the Nazis responded by jeering and laughing at him. Plus, he had given the press a copy of his speech beforehand, and Hitler had his rebuttal prepared. He assured Wells that the fortunes of the SPD would never recover, and that Germany would be free, but not through the means Wells advocated for. The vote was taken, and 444 were in favor, with the 94 SPD members being against it. The Enabling Act was set to be in effect for four years, and was renewed in 1937 and 1939, before becoming permanent in 1943. The German democracy was gone, and Hitler's cabinet could rule with impunity. Hitler quickly moved to bring the nation further to heel. On March 29th, he declared the creation of Reich governors, men who would go into the German states and directly coordinate the actions of local assemblies and cabinets with that of the new regime in Berlin. Papen was bypassed as Reich Commissar of Prussia, and Goering was placed in control of that gigantic German state, with men such as the former Free Corps leader Ritter von Epp taking over in Bavaria. And with the communists driven underground, it came to be the turn of the SPD and their trade union allies. The trade unions had found themselves under attack by the SA along with the rest of the left and found their offices and meeting places occupied. With no coordinated strategy of resistance forthcoming, labor leaders throughout the spring of 1933 strove to make some accommodation with the regime, pointing to the Nazi promise of job creation programs as something they could find common ground on. Their delusions would be quickly dispelled. On May 2nd, just after May Day, the SS descended on the leadership of the trade unions, arresting them and marching them off to concentration camps. Their operations were seized and put under the control of the Nazis. On May 10th, the German Labor Front, the DAF, was founded under leadership of Robert Ley. It was ostensibly supposed to be the controlled group that would replace the nation's many trade unions. It promised workers' protection in the new state similar to their old unions, but by years end, the DAF was reduced to a propaganda role only. 
The rights of workers, such as they became, were dictated from the Ministry of Labor, and the priority there was rearmament at any cost, meaning that the business class would be kept happy and cooperative at the expense of the workers. Also on May 10th, the SPD's assets were seized by government decree, with Vels being able to ship the party's archives and money out of the country beforehand. The SPD found itself split, with part of its members fleeing to Prague and others staying behind to try and ride the storm out. Those who remained behind continued to attend Reichstag sessions, which only served to deepen the split between the two groups as it gave unnecessary legitimacy to the Nazi government. The situation wouldn't last long, though. On June 21st, Wilhelm Frick announced that the SPD as a party would be banned from holding offices, and on the same day, 3,000 of its members were arrested. 500 of them were taken as a group by the SA and tortured over several days, leading to 91 deaths in that instance alone. Finally, on July 14th, the SPD and KBD both were formally banned. It was an astonishing turnaround, as at the start of the year, most had assumed that to crush the left would have required a civil war. But thanks to the demoralization of the German people and the fearfulness of the left's leadership, an ongoing reign of terror sufficed for the task. And as the left was being mopped up, attention was turned to the center. The Catholics of Germany were still fearful about coming under attack. Hitler had agreed to leave them be when he needed the Zentrum's votes back at the end of March, but with power securely in his hands and the left smashed, they didn't have much leverage. Prelate Koss, a Catholic priest and leader of the Zentrum, opted to focus his efforts on saving the church's standing in Germany rather than that of his own political party, which, to be fair, the latter was increasingly a liability in the new environment. Koss resigned as leader and worked with Papen as a go-between to negotiate a concordant between the Vatican and Hitler, similar to the Lateran pacts that Mussolini had concluded four years previously. This left leadership at the Zentrum to former Chancellor Heinrich Brüning. His role to play was simply to watch his party be picked apart, much as the SPD and KPD had been. Offices were seized, newspapers were shut down. On June 26th, Himmler began arresting local members of the party's leadership, and local governments dismissed Zentrum public officials. On July 1st, the Reich Concordant with the Vatican was agreed to, later being signed on the 20th, guaranteeing the practice of the Catholic faith, but banning priests from engaging in politics and demanding that Catholics swear loyalty to the state. The heart of the Zentrum was undermined, and remaining public servants and politicians from the party resigned from their positions across the country. On July 5th, the Zentrum dissolved itself and urged its members and supporters to join with the NSDAP. One of the cornerstones of Weimar Germany voluntarily submitted itself to Hitler. When a new bishop was consecrated in October, the traditional Catholic procession was joined for the first time with marching brown shirts carrying swastika banners. The other liberal parties, their support having dwindled to almost nothing since the electoral disaster starting in September 1930, also dissolved in late June, early July. That really just left Hugenberg and his nationalist DMVP party. They were in coalition with the Nazis, and, well, they kind of still largely hated each other. The nationalists, even after all this time, looked down on the NSDAP and its Fuhrer and saw themselves as the real leaders of the new government. The Nazis embarked on a more subtle-than-usual campaign of undermining Hugenberg and his supporters— they accused him of losing the confidence of Prussian farmers and his capacity as the Prussian state's minister of agriculture. Basically, the intent was to remove him and others allied with him from their postings one by one. 
Hugenberg saw this strategy play out and threatened to resign, believing that his departure would bring down the cabinet and invalidate the Enabling Act. In case you haven't picked up on it yet, Hugenberg had a very high opinion of himself. His followers, though, started to waver, and many among the nationalists defected to the Nazis. Hugenberg started lashing out at his isolation in the cabinet and over attacks on him in the press. He acted too rashly when he made a public demand that Germany's old African colonies be returned, without consulting the cabinet. Hitler and all the others swiftly condemned him as nobody else backed the demand, and his name was made into a global laughingstock. On June 26th, he and the Nationalists were barred from a public meeting by the police, and Hugenberg decided that enough was enough. He approached Hindenburg on June 29th and offered his resignation, saying that he couldn't work under such conditions anymore. His belief was that Hindenburg would reject his resignation and then intervene on his behalf with Hitler. Hindenburg, though, simply nodded and accepted the resignation. Hugenberg tried to backpedal, but Hitler's condition to reverse the resignation was submitting to his will, and Hugenberg just couldn't do that. He bowed out and contented himself with remaining a member of the Reichstag, keeping his seat until 1945 as a partyless guest of the NSDAP. The DNVP joined the other parties in dissolving itself, and its members turned to the Nazis if they desired to stay in politics. Hugenberg himself would retain control of most of his media empire until 1943, when the state's own publishing agency bought him out. He would survive the war and afterwards insist that he had never done anything wrong. And for our purposes, his story is concluded. With the political parties of Germany dismantled and the army sitting off to the side, there was only one challenge left to Hitler's ascent to absolute power, and that was within his own movement, the SA. The reason why they were a problem was the same as it ever was. They were not quite under his control, even if he was officially their leader. As I've touched on in the past, they saw him as a spiritual Fuhrer, yes, but as a group, they had their own ideas of what Germany should be and their place within it. Remember, these were guys who had no love for the establishment of Germany. Hitler needed the industrialists to build his weapons, and he needed the army to fight his future wars. The SA were uninterested in either group. They wanted to smash the business class in order to escape their own poverty, and they wanted to replace the formal army as the fighting force of Nazi Germany. This was all incompatible with Hitler's vision, and it increasingly set the SA on a collision course with their Fuhrer. But before I tackle the showdown with the SA and the final consolidation of power in Germany under Hitler, I need to go back a little bit. I didn't cover the history of the SA or the SS in great detail last season because their importance really only picked up as the Nazis' electoral fortunes changed in 1930. But both subgroups in the overall National Socialist movement are vitally important for the history of Nazi Germany, and next week we'll be taking a little digression to the chronological narrative and cover the history of both, as the SS was itself basically a spinoff of the SA that went in a whole other direction. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music